Joel chapter 2, if you would turn there, Joel chapter 2. We're going to pray uh, just as we turn. We've been going through the, the, the book of Joel um, over these weeks. This morning, I just want to speak uh, on let the ministers of the Lord weep. And maybe not a message that you were hoping for or expecting this morning, but I believe it's the Lord's message. Let the ministers of the Lord weep. And this morning, if you're saved, you are a minister of the Lord as a servant of God, and in this, this morning in our reading, the ministers of the Lord are instructed to weep. Joel chapter 2, we'll pray as we turn. Father, this morning we pray again for your help and for your anointing, for your spirit to come and to quicken your word to your hearts. Every word of man, I pray, this morning would fall and die, Lord, but every word Lord, that you would have me to say this morning would be quickened by your spirit. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are open. Lord, we just come against every work of the enemy, every distracting thought, every spirit of wickedness that would come to try to thwart your plan and your purpose today, that your word will accomplish that what has been sent to do. It will not and it shall not return unto you void, but Lord, it will bring forth much fruit to the glory of Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Joel chapter 2, and we're just reading from verse 15 uh, to 17, just these few verses. Again, there's a repeat of verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Just a second reading this morning, it's one verse just to, as an introduction. You'll find it over just in 1 Chronicles and chapter 12, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, uh, verse 32. 1 Chronicles 12, if you turn over, verse 32. I pray that this is the people that we will be and the people that God would make us as we come to understand and hear the word of the Lord this morning, this is a people, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, and it is verse 35, sorry, I'll just pick it up in one second. 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 32, sorry. And the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were two hundred, and all their brethren were at their commandment. Here is a group of individuals that understood the times. Not only did they understand the times, but they knew what to do. It's not just enough to know the time and to discern the sound of the trumpet we also must know what we are to do. Now, I want to share just a couple of things this morning that I believe the Spirit of the Lord has just laid on my heart. 
I believe in a prophetic sense that we are about we are about to witness a seismic social and political change. I believe we're about to see something that we haven't seen before. And it's going to affect us as a nation and it's going to affect us spiritually. When the tectonic plates of the earth rub together, they send forth tremors. Those tremors are measured, but then when the plates, when they actually shift, it creates an earthquake. And that earthquake is seen in the natural. But listen this morning very carefully. There is, there are the tremors that we have witnessed. There is the tremors that have already taken place. The warnings have already come. But we're about to witness a shift in the whole strategy and the spiritual, social, and political makeup of our nation. We will witness this. We will see it. We must understand the times, and we must also be a people that know what to do. When Israel traveled through that wilderness, every station that they stopped at had a spiritual significance. It just wasn't a name but there was a particular reason why they stopped there. The name often donated was indicator of what, what it was in a spiritual context. Their second station on their journey was a place called Elam. Elam had 12 wells and 70 palm trees. That speaks to us spiritually of provision in Jesus Christ. It's not a denomination, even though there is one called Elam. It's a spiritual place. And Elam was in the desert, but there was 12 wells and 70 palm trees. There was all the provision for Israel in the midst of the wilderness. And what we must understand are the times, but secondly, we must also know what to do. And all across these lands, what there must be in these days are little Elam's that are places of refuge, places where the water's flowing, places where there's the palm trees. That's all speaking of the provision of the cross in Christ. That when the weary and the broken and the maimed and the blind and the halt and the demon-possessed come through the doors, they'll find rest for their souls. And so when He comes, these places will be places of faith. Places of joy. Places where people know how to pray and touch heaven and pray through. Places where people know how to praise and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Places where the books opened and the unsearchable riches of Christ are preached with signs and wonders following the preaching of the gospel. These will be little hamlets and refuges and places maybe small in number, but they'll be Elam's. Because we must understand the times and we must know what to do. We must know what to do. We are about to witness a seismic change in our social and political structure. And we must be ready. The gospel will still be the gospel. Jesus will still be everything. But we as the people of God must know when we come together that this place would be like an Elam. This place would be like an Elam. 
There's three things here in our reading in Joel chapter 2 that the ministers of the Lord are directed in. We see in verse 16 that we're instructed to come together to sanctify or separate ourselves, assemble the elders, gather the children, those that suck the breast, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. In other words, it's saying that there must be an urgency to the day that we have come to. It's and directing us very clearly that the priests are the ministers of the Lord. Now, if you're saved this morning, we belong to the priesthood of all believers. You're a priest and a king. It's not a collar around your neck. If you're saved this morning, you're part of the priesthood of all believers. So you're a servant of the Lord. And we're instructed here that the ministers of the Lord should weep between the porch and the altar because he is warning of the coming day of the Lord. He's explicitly telling them that the day of the Lord is coming. And we've looked at that and the trumpet was being sounded to awaken the people to this reality. And as they weep there to say, Spare thy people, O Lord. And then there's three things that I want to talk about this morning and bring them into our context of where we are today. It says, Give not thine heritage to reproach, number one. Number two, it says then that the heathen should not, should not rule over them. And number three, that they would say among the people, where is their God? So these three things, we are being directed in the place of prayer. How we are to pray, how we are to intercede, how we are to come before, I believe this is the throne of grace, and how we are to come before the Lord. The heritage or the heritage of the Lord, the prayer is, don't give your heritage, Lord, to reproach. The word reproach, don't let the, the heritage of Christianity become a disgrace or a shame. And so that word heritage is simply something that uh, has been sent down or something possessed as a result of one's natural situation or birth. It's the birthright. So in the Old Testament, just to clarify this, you'll hear terms and words like heritage, inheritance, promise, possession. They're all talking about the same thing. Now, if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, you'll read in the Old Testament concerning a man called Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 8, and it says this, that by faith, Abraham, Hebrews 11 and 8, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed, went out, not knowing where he went, but we know what he was looking for. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. So we see his and Israel's inheritance in the Old Testament was a land that was promised to them, known as Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham, it was a land, it is Israel known to us today, the land of Israel belongs to God's people. Yes, in the New Testament and in the spiritual covenant, our inheritance has come to us through our birthright. In Hebrews chapter 9, if you go back just a couple of chapters, we understand that we have received an inheritance Hebrews 9 and 15 says, And for this cause he is 
the mediator of the New Testament by the means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So this morning, through the new birth, as we've talked around the table, we have become the sons of God and we have received, praise the Lord this morning, an eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. But thanks God this morning that he died. Praise the Lord that he rose again and he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. And what we have received when we're saved is an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. In Ephesians 1 and 11, it tells us there, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. On down in that great chapter, it says that the eyes of our understanding were enlightened, that you may know what the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So you have received an eternal inheritance through the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes by way of birthright. That's why you must be born again. When you're born again, you receive an eternal inheritance. It never wavers regarding the stock shares and everything else. It's eternal in heaven. His name is Jesus. We have this hope this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now through this, The heritage, just very simply, if I can, I'll try. But the heritage relates to the inheritance. In other words, those that have an inheritance, an eternal inheritance, you're saved and you'll live your life on this earth. He doesn't save us and take us straight to glory. He saves us and leaves us in this world. We're not off the world, but we're in the world. And your heritage then is as you live this life, no matter what the Lord gives you, 10, 20, 30 years as a Christian, 40 years or 50 years, or possibly more. But when God calls you home, your heritage is the legacy that you've left behind. What you've done for Jesus. That's what really matters. How you've lived your life as a Christian. How you've walked this world that is filled with wickedness and darkness. You leave a heritage behind, a Christian heritage. So when you go into Belfast, for example, in the natural, and I would be interested in some of these things, but you have buildings, monuments, they're all part of our heritage, right? And so what do we do with them? We protect them, we list them, it's A1, B1, B2, all the rest of it. All these buildings, courthouses, jails, Uh, cathedrals, statues, walls, monuments, political figures, all the rest of it, shipyards, linen mills. What is that? And the natural, if you're from Northern Ireland, that will mean something to you. If you're not, it means nothing really. But that's part of our heritage. And they protect them. And if you do anything to that heritage, you can be prosecuted. But there's a greater heritage than all these things that are going to go up in smoke, that are temporal, that men will die for, there's a greater heritage. 
And that's the heritage, the Christian heritage of our nation. Now, most people don't really, today, don't really care about this part. They're not really interested in the Christian heritage of our nation. Actually, here's the reality. The people that are walking across the front doors of our church up and down this street this morning have no idea that the liberty that they have and the blessings that they're living in is because of our Christian heritage. But they have no idea of that because they're blind, they're in sin, and they're in darkness. So they don't know. But to us that are saved this morning, we have a liberty, we have a freedom, and we have a blessing still on our nation. And that's because of our Christian heritage. Now, some people even in the church don't appreciate it, but I do. And God does. The heritage that has been given to us. And so in this nation, if I could sort of bring it into the North, the Northern Ireland context this morning, the gospel heritage, the mighty things that God has done in this little nation, the heritage of Christianity, the mighty works that God has performed in Northern Ireland, the souls that have been won, the missionaries that have been sent, the churches that have been raised up, the preachers that have gone out, the revivals that has visited this shore. This is a nation with a great gospel heritage. This is a land that still even today, you know, you look at revival movement in Canalan, just a few miles up the road sending out tons upon tons of Scripture and Bibles across the world, comes from this little spot. And that's the heritage that we have. I was reading about and learning about TBF Thompson, a very well-known businessman in, in Northern Ireland who was so wealthy, so blessed in his business, and then had the vision and the foresight before that God would take him home to, to sell his business and buy properties all across the world, set up a trust, and through the rental income, continue to support missions and churches all across the world because he had vision to leave a legacy. Then it's beyond this world that he had the foresight to see. And even now, though he is dead and gone home to glory, the legacy lives on. And the old man that started the revival movement with one shoebox going out to Africa, the legacy is left and goes on. Because they live not in the temporal or were so conditioned by the now, but they seen something greater beyond this world. And his name is Jesus. The heritage that we have, the missions, the men, the Nicholsons, the Amy Carmichaels, the, the great works that had been done in the shipyard and people saved and souls swept into the kingdom and the amount of missionaries that have left this little country and have gone across the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because this nation has sown and has received the blessing of the Lord. And we are still living in the blessing of the sacrifice that has been done in the generations that are before us. 
We're living in the blessing. You may not know it this morning. You're here because someone paid a price. Someone made a sacrifice. Someone sold into the kingdom. Someone believed. And then you live in the blessing of that. The prophet says, Lord, don't give your heritage to shame and disgrace. Don't bring your Christian heritage to disgrace. The psalmist says in Psalm 94 verse 14, For the Lord will not cast off His people, neither will He forsake His inheritance. We are instructed in the Bible Now we are to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We have something spiritually to fight for. I'm not talking about flags and bands, and I'm talking about a spiritual war. And we're to earnestly contend for that faith, for the faith of men and women that gave all, sacrificed all, believed all, and went out from this land to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That seen revivals, Ulster had a revival. 100 precious souls were swept into the kingdom. This land has known what it is for a visitation of Almighty God. Not only in 1859, but in the 1920s with Nicholson and other great moves of the Spirit of God in the 50s and the 60s, God has visited this land before. Lord, don't give your heritage to disgrace. And really, when we look at Israel in the old, they're there for our example. Is there really a people that are concerned about these things? Is there really a people that are really moved, really concerned about the heritage of the Lord? If you turn over into Jeremiah chapter 2, because remember, they are here for our example and the pleadings of the Lord and the desire of the Lord to plead with His people. We'd send them prophets In Jeremiah chapter 2, it says these words. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in the land that was not sown. This is the Lord speaking to his people. I remember the time you came out after me in the wilderness. I remember that with all of your heart, with all of your might, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, you'd seek after me. You'd search after me. Even through a wilderness, you'd come after me because I was the God that loved you, delivered you, and saved you, and kept you. And you'd come after me. You'd a passion for me. You'd a love for me. I remember, this is the Lord speaking. Israel was holiness unto the Lord. The first fruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquities have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? What is it that you find? God is saying to Israel, What is it that you have found in me, or your fathers have found in me, that they would walk and turn from me? What is it that I have done? That's what God's saying. What is it that I have done that you would turn from me? What has God done that you would walk from him? 
What is what has God done that you would turn your back and that you would go and serve other gods? What is it that God has done that you would serve the temporary things of this world? What is it that God has done? This is a God who is faithful. This is a God that is true. This is a God who loves us. This is a God who gave himself for us. What has he done that he would be treated in such a way? And so it says in verse 6, Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that had had, that no man passed through and where no man dwells. He said, and I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land. And what happened is that they made my heritage an abomination. Then in verse 8, look what it says. And the priests said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. You, you know that this is happening today. You know that this is the spirit today that has come even in amongst the, the broader section of the church. Nobody's saying, where's the Lord? Where's the reality of this God that delivered us from the hand of the enemy, the power of the living God. And they prophesy by the spirit of Baal. You don't think that happens? It happens. And they walk after the things that do not profit. Wherefore, verse 9, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children, I will plead. Lord, here's one prayer. People often pray, and I do as well. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, here's a prayer. Lord, don't give your heritage to disgrace because there's a heritage here that's worth praying for. Second thing he said that we're to say is the heathen should not rule over us. Now, they're very smart today because they changed the meaning of the word heathen in the dictionary. They modernized it to make it fit the politically correct world in which we're living in. They're very clever the dictionary once said this, but now it's changed to mean something different. Why? Because they want to be politically correct. I don't. I don't really know much about the dictionaries, but I don't want to be politically correct. The heathen, the heathen is simply anyone that does not believe in the God of the Holy Bible. Modern day dictionaries have changed it to anyone who does not believe in being a Christian a Jew or a Muslim. They're very clever, aren't they? The heathen rule over us. God would always warn before he revealed what was coming, prophetically give an opportunity for the people to repent. It's not God's will for the heathen to rule over the land. But listen to me this morning. But rule they will. But rule they will if his people forsake him. God would send them warning after warning. He would send them Jeremiah. These are all the pre-exile prophets just before Babylon. They would, he would send them Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah. He would send them plead with the nation. Then the judgment come. Then God acts. 
Then the blessing of the Lord is lifted. His hand is lifted off the nation. And the Bible tells us that the nation that forgets God is turned into hell. When they turn from the one true God. This is what happened to Israel. Look at it in 2 Kings chapter 24. Time and time again, the Lord is sending them a prophet to speak to them and to warn them. And they just ignored the warning. They just ignored the word of the Lord. They just carried on as though nothing was going to happen. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. God's word is true. In 2 Kings verse, sorry, chapter 24 and verse 13, you read there, eventually the judgment of God fell upon Israel as a people. And it says there in verse 13, and he carried out thence, as is King Nebuchadnezzar, as he came up, the king of Babylon, he comes to the house of the Lord, he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said, and he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes, look what happens, and all the mighty men of valor were all carried away. Even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. All the mighty men were taken first. The great men, the men that walked with God, that knew what it was to know the glory of God and the power of God. I want to just share something, just my own belief, it might be wrong, but I do believe this. I believe that we have seen in the space of, say, 15 or 20 years, across most of the denominations, there were notable individual men that were mighty men of God. They were known for their walk with God, for for experiencing the reality of God, the revivals and the power and the glory of God. Many of us have come into contact with such men that were across the world known and renowned to be great men of God. You know what I'm talking about. And in this short space of 15 or 20 years, it seems like God has taken most of those great and mighty men and called them home to glory. Would you agree with me? We have seen it happen. God's called a generation of men and women that knew God, walked with God, knew the reality of God. They might have been from different persuasions within the body of Christ, but each one of them knew of the reality of the presence and the power and the glory and the majesty of Jesus and knew how to walk with God. And in a short space of time, over those years, we often would talk and say, God's called this man home. God's called this one home. God's called this one home. And we have much of their ministry and CDs and tapes, but it seems like the legacy and the heritage that was left us, all those great and mighty men, for some reason in the sovereign purpose of God, God's called them all home to glory. And we see there's something happening in the vacuum and the void. We see that suddenly then, even over these past 10 or 15 years or so, that really the depth and the substance of, the spiritual depth and substance of the church has suddenly become very shallow. 
We're more moved by the facility or their performance rather than the deep experience of the presence of the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? I believe we're all in the same page here. And, and something's happened. Do you see it? Something has happened. Something significant has happened. It tells us in chapter 25 uh, of 2 Kings, and on the ninth day of the fourth month, there was a famine prevailed in the city. There's, there's like a spiritual famine in the nations. There is a spiritual famine. Would you agree? Would you agree that there's a famine for the hearing of the Word of God? And there was no bread for the people of the land. And we're talking about the, the bread of life. We're talking about the, the reality of Jesus, the, the power and the presence and the Holy Ghost moving and the glory of Jesus and, and the majesty of Christ and the bread of life being broken and, and men and women being touched by the power of God, lives being transformed, truly born of the Spirit and filled with the Holy Ghost. And now we, we struggle to get a birth. And when the birth happens, it doesn't last. We want people to be well born, well born of the Spirit, born delivered, born set free. And we're struggling. It's like Zion hasn't the strength to bring forth. It tells us here that the city was broken up. And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which is by the king's garden. And the king went away toward the plain. And then it tells us in 2 Kings 25 and 7, it tells us there, and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And just very simply, I believe there's a spiritual onslaught. A spiritual onslaught to slaughter our young. Oh, it's happening. To slaughter our sons and our daughters. And they do put the eyes out of Zedekiah. And the church loses its vision. The vision. The people will perish. Clear vision. And they bound him with fetters of brass. And they carried him to Babylon. And we know the last thing that he's seen was the slaughter of his, his own sons. And there's a spiritual onslaught to destroy there is a spiritual sewer pit from the pit of hell to destroy young people today. To bind them and to get them plunged into so much sin, particularly through the internet and every type of immorality and every type of vice. Plunge them deeper and deeper into sin to bind them. And the church has lost her vision. And the old men have been carried away. There's no bread to be broken. And there's a spiritual famine in the land of you. You know, can we understand the times? There's a lot of people will not believe this, not even appreciate it being preached. I get that, but that's okay. We can't preach because it makes people happy or like us. That's what most preaching is today. It's, 
It's to please the masses. It's to get the crowd. It's to tickle their ears. And hopefully, in some ways, they also want to empty your pockets. But the heathen then begins to rule. The heathen rules. Now, if you don't think that that's happening, I want to tell you, you need to, you really need to take a few moments and do a wee, a wee bit of research. How is it? How is it? How is it possible that 5% of the United Kingdom's population are able to dictate that 60 to 70% of our meat is slaughtered and a curse is put on it and it's offered to an idol? And Paul tells us that we're not to eat anything that has been offered to an idol. Can you tell me how that's possible? How is it that 5% of the population of the United Kingdom, and again, I know it's not really popular, but I'm talking about in this circumstance, the LGBTQ and whatever else they're going to add to it. How is it possible? And it's not against the people, but how is it possible that 5% can redefine Christian marriage, redefine our education, redefine everything of what we believe as a man and a woman and how God has created. How can they politically, socially, and every other way dictate the whole nation when we're told that the United Kingdom is 59% Christian? But you know and I know it's more than a name. Because if 59% of people said they're Christian, we're following this book, I'm going to tell you, this nation would be living in revival. And so to be a Christian is to believe the book, the Bible, God's Word. And so the heathen rule, I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, the heathen are ruling our nation. This is a post-Christian nation. The sooner we awaken to the reality of where we are and what is happening and understand the times and then also to know what to do, it's changing and it's about to change quickly. How is it? I know we're not allowed even to lament that this was once a Christian nation. You're not even allowed to say, we used to be a God-fearing nation. You're not allowed to say that. You're actually not allowed to talk about this nation being a God-fearing nation. You're not allowed to say those words. It's offensive. But it was. And that's why we're living in the blessing of that today. Our heritage as a Christian nation has been given to disgrace and shame. How long? When Israel are carried away into captivity from Babylon, you know, I think of those prophets that came. Think of those Old Testament prophets. We read of them. You think of them coming. God's given them a message for God's people. 
Yes, he was warning them of judgment, but yet he was pleading with them. God loves you, God. You are his people. God wants you to come back to him. And he sent the prophets time and time again. What did they do with them? He stoned them. They imprisoned them. They rejected them. They knew better than God. You not think this is happening today? You're not thinking this is the hour that we have come to? Most of the masses today are more interested in a facility or something to keep us relatively happy than maybe take something just of, if I just do it a wee bit, now and again, God's happy, and we just carry on. But listen, when Christ, who is our life, he's either your life or he's not, and he's our life this morning, he's our everything. But I asked the question to myself because it doesn't tell us how many years of the heathen ruling over Israel before they began to cry. How long did it have to happen? How long was it that they would would go on in the rule of the heathen with Babylon and the king over them and the bondage and and the oppression and the powers of darkness Brothers and sisters, there has been an outpouring of wickedness. How long before the people start to weep? How long before they were in Babylon did they begin to long for the Lord and His presence again? The psalmist says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sit down. When did that happen? And yea, we wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered the glory, when we remembered the God that delivered us and the hand of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord upon our nation. When we remember God, we began to weep. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down. They began to weep. And I want to tell you something. When there's tears, when the ministers of the Lord begin to weep, when they begin to remember what the Lord has done and the greatness of the God that we serve. And when they begin to call out to God and cry unto the Lord, truly between the porch and the altar, and we begin to weep for the presence of the Lord, then God will come. You don't think this happens? Matthew chapter 23, we've talked about it often. Verse 37, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, stands over the city of Jerusalem and cries these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you wouldn't. A.D. 70, that city is completely destroyed by the Romans, and the Jews are scattered across the world, oppressed and scattered and put out of their land. And 2,000 years later, by the sovereign purposes of God, God has gathered them back again. And if you think that's a mistake or a coincidence, brothers and sisters, God's on the throne. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, he warned them. You know, there's not a person here, not one person, who's not saved. Who's not saved. One person in this room who isn't saved. That hasn't been warned. Do you know what that is in itself? That's the mercy of God. 
He said in Luke 19, 41, when he was come near to the city, he beheld it. You imagine Jesus standing, wrapped in that flesh, Almighty God. And there he stands looking over Jerusalem. He had sent the prophets. He had sent men to warn them. He had sent because he's faithful and he's merciful. And there Jesus himself stands looking over that city weeping. And he says, if you had known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, if you had known what was coming, I've warned you, I've sent my word, I've sent my prophets, I have been faithful to you. Oh, you're without excuse this morning. Not one person has an excuse in this room. We, we hear of that, that, that window there where there's literally millions of people that have never heard the name of Jesus once. And you hear it every meeting and you hear it every day. And you hear his name being lifted up and sung and the gospel preached. And there's people on the other side of this world have never heard the name of Jesus even once. It's going to be a shameful thing. And you have been warned. That's not the preaching we came for. I tell you the truth, brothers and sisters. I believe this morning sincerely that I'm actually preaching the heart of God. You've been warned. Jesus says if you'd known what was coming, you would have repented. If you really knew what was happening, if you understood the times and what you should do, you get right with God in a moment. But you've been deceived. And you're following after the things of the world. How many people know sometimes we don't miss something until it's gone? How many people know that's the truth? We don't miss it until it's away. How many people know that? Maybe a loved one. Maybe someone we've taken for granted, not in a, not in a wrong way, but we've just experienced their relationship, their friendship for so many years, and we just take it for granted that they're there every day. And then one day, God calls them home and they're not there. And then in the natural, isn't it true then you would long just for one more conversation? You would long just for maybe one more time to hold their hand or tell them that you love them. Is that not true? You don't miss something often until it's away. And Israel really didn't miss God until the blessing was lifted. And then one day, they sat down by a river and they began to weep when they remembered Zion. The cry of the psalmist, not only, just lastly then, the cry is, would someone, would they say, where is, where is their God? Has heritage has been given to reproach the heathen rules over us. And then the cry is, where is their God? The cry of the psalmist, if you turn to Psalm chapter 79, O God, O God, the heathen are come into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple they have defiled, and they have laid Jerusalem in heaps. Verse 9 says, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is their God?
I want to tell you they may not explicitly use exactly that term, but you know when you meet them on the streets, when you meet them in the workplace, when you hear them on the television, when you hear the debates and the political shows and some wee creator who loves the Lord's phoning in to a political show and the mockery and the scorn and the rejection and all the slander that they receive and how they're treated so despicably, how they're detested by the world. Do you know what they're saying? Where's your God? That's what they're saying. Where is your God? The heathen are saying, where's your God? And the heathen rule. Help us, O God of our salvation. The psalmist says in Psalm 42, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee. O God, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night. While my tears, they say, continue. My tears for the servants of the Lord, the ministers of God, that weep and get a hold of the heart of God. Do you know what their tears say? Where is my God? That's what their tears say. Where is thy God? God says, let the ministers of the Lord weep. Men would stand up boldly throughout all generations and in the midst of the darkest of time. And in their hearts, they'd be so burdened with the burden and the heart of the Father and the heart of God for a nation, for a people that are going to hell without Christ. And they would get a hold of something that is not in the natural realm, but it's for the honor and the heritage of Jesus Christ and for the Christian heritage of our nation not in a nationalistic way, but in the honor of Jesus Christ and the glory of God, and say, God, would you come? Isaiah the prophet cried in Isaiah chapter 63, moving in to chapter 64. O Lord, verse 17, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Where is the fear of the Lord? Where is the fear of the Lord? The reverence for the things of God. Return for thy servants' sake the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it, but a little while our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou, thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. We are called by your name. And then what does he say next? The chapter splits it, but there is no chapter divisions in the original. Then he just cries, Oh Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down? That the mountains would melt at your very presence. We need you to come again. Psalmist would say, For I have eaten ashes like bread, mingled my drink with weeping. Now shall arise and have mercy on Zion. For the time to favor her, yea, there's a set time and it's coming. They understood the times, but they knew what to do. I'm closing in a couple of minutes. They understood the times, but they knew what to do. We need to know what the root causes of all of this is. We need to understand what is happening. We need to have a certain amount of spiritual light. Not that anyone has the full revelation, but we need to have a certain amount of light and understand why we are in the mess that we are in. What has actually happened? 
What has transpired over these years? What has taken place? The Lord, to come before the throne of God, to come with a heart that is broken and to come with a heart that is bold and say, Lord, what is the enemy going to do? Joshua said these words, Alas, O Lord, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God that we'd been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Do you know what this is all about? Anybody ask you ever what's church all about? It's all about the great name of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Joshua, at that time of defeat, when Israel had to turn their back on their enemy, and they were fleeing, we don't know what to do. They're bringing in same-sex marriage. They're bringing in their abortion thing. It's going to be worse than what's over in England. It's an absolute disgrace. They've, they've put it in above our heads. We don't even get a vote on it. And sadly, can I say, the political party that was holding power for two years seems as though they stuck their fingers in their ears because they're more interested in their salaries and they're more interested in popularity than they are in standing up for God's Word. And if we cling to the nationalistic side, we're going to be disappointed. I tell you, I believe in voting, and I believe you should vote. And I believe you should vote for what is closest to this word. But my trust isn't in a politician. My trust is in the God of heaven, that he's sovereign above everything. And his people, brothers and sisters, we're living in a day, it looks like, that the enemy's prevailing. His laws are being brought in. They are laws from the pit of hell itself. They're birthed in hell. They're conspired in hell. And men who are wicked in the mother parliament have brought those laws, are trying to bring those laws to pass. But I want to tell you something very clearly this morning. The answer is not going to be on who wins the election. The answer is going to be when the ministers of the Lord weep. When we know what it is to weep and to intercede and to lay hold of God and say, Lord, it's your heritage. The heathen rule over us. Now, Lord, when we turn our backs because the enemy's pressing, your name's at stake. And so for your name and for your honor, we're your people. Lord, would you come down? Would you rend the heavens that the mountains would melt at your presence? Brothers and sisters, we are about to see a seismic shift. What are we going to do? I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to weep between the porch and the altar. I tell you something else. I believe this passionately. This needs to be a place, and there's going to be hundreds like it. it's not going to be the only place. 
But this needs to be a place. See this wee house and the people that are gathered here. Do you know what this needs to be? This needs to be a place where it's full of the presence of God. That's it. Where God's people are full of the presence of God. Where his name is lifted up. I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. There's a man that was willing to die on London Bridge for a demonic God. I'll tell you something. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It needs to be a place where we know what it is to pray, where we know what it is to praise, and that we preach the truth of God's word with the love of God in our heart. It may not always please everyone. It may not. We ever get into the game of trying to please the masses. We are finished. It must be preached. But church, we must know. We must know what to do. We can all see what's happening and understand it, but we must know what to do. We must know what to do. Joshua said, See, as for me, my house, know what we're going to do? We're going to serve Jesus. They'll change our laws. I believe that they might even stop us from preaching in streets or try to. They might even ban the Bible because it says in the beginning God created a man and a woman. That's offensive. They might even ban the book. But I want to tell you, they'll never defeat the church of Jesus Christ because Jesus says, I'll build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. One thing we're going to need it's not a denomination. It's not a creed. I tell you what we're going to need. We're going to need people full of the Holy Ghost. Know what it is to get right to that altar and begin to pray and weep before the Lord. Weep before the Lord. Lord, your heritage and your name. Oh God, brothers and sisters, Joel doesn't stop there. Because we move in to the great times of restoration when the ministers wept. When there was repentance, then deliverance comes. He's faithful. He's faithful. We need to pray for our nation. We need to weep. We need to believe God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, Lord, in the name of Jesus, everything and every word in all sincerity Every word that has come from Tim McElrath, I pray, Lord, that you would cause it to be forgotten to die. And everything that has been breathed by the Holy Spirit into this heart, the Lord, that has been spoken through these stammering lips, that you would take them for your glory and that you would lift up your wonderful name. And, oh, Father, this morning we weep. Lord, we cry. Lord, we long again for the power in your presence to be so mightily let loose upon this land. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us this morning for what we've made it. Lord, we've lived in the bounty and the blessing of a sacrifice of years gone by. 
Lord, we've lived in the goodness of what others have sacrificed and given. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that what has been our blessing has not become something, Lord, that we've taken for granted. But Lord, this morning that we would leave a legacy if you should tarry, Lord, to the generation that comes behind us. Lord, that they know how to walk with God. They know how to serve God. They know how to love God. And Lord, they know how to sacrifice. They know what it is to give and they know what it is to stand and they know what it is to praise and pray and to proclaim your matchless name. Lord, would you flood again your church, Lord, with the love of God. Lord, would you call us from our backsliding? Would you call us from our wandering? Would you call us from our murmuring and complaining? Lord, would you call us back, Lord? Lord, not because we deserve it, but because you're gracious. Lord, you're slow to anger and you're kind and you're loving. And Lord, would you draw us again, Lord? Lord, deliver us from ourself, Lord. Oh, God, we pray that the example that you set that you give everything, you give your life, Lord. May that example of humility be among us, Lord, that we give everything. Lord, that we not be a people, Lord, that hold back. But, oh, Father, this morning, despite the darkness, Lord, would you flood and fill every vessel with oil this morning. Lord, may there be oil in our lamps and keep us burning, Lord, right to the break of day, Lord. May there be a faith in this house that shifts mountains, Lord, may there be, Lord, a true cry in the place of prayer. Lord, we pray for that gift of intercession, Lord, that you would bestow it. And, Lord, you would anoint it. You would awaken it, Lord. You would stir it, Lord. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we know how to pray, Lord. We know how to lay hold, Lord. Oh, Father, we ask for a fresh anointing upon your people, Lord. Lord, for every gifting and calling of God to be awakened, to be stirred, to be strengthened, Lord, to rise up out of ashes, Lord. We know the circumstances are to press us down, to discourage us, to pull us away. But, oh God, this morning we cry in the name of Jesus, Lord, awaken us, oh God. Awaken us, Lord. Lord, for your coming, Lord, and your coming soon. Lord, we don't want to be slumber and slumber and sleep, Lord. Lord, we love you this morning. Oh, Father, we pray. Lord, we know we can't manufacture anything. We could, but we, Lord, dare not in such an hour. But Lord, we pray. Lord, let the servants and the ministers of the Lord give us the tears Give us the tears, Lord, to weep. Lord, we cry. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy, Lord. Revive us again, Lord. Revive us again.